Well, good morning, everybody. Let's take our Bibles this morning and open them to Genesis 32 and verse 29. Seeking to finish the chapter today. How hard can that be? There's just a few verses there. We are picking up in our verse-by-verse teaching through the book of Genesis. We're in that part of the book of Genesis where God's hand is on Jacob. God, of course, is raising up a nation, the nation of Israel. Really important nation because through that nation he'll bless the world. And he does that by giving Abraham promises. Those are transferred to Isaac. And now we're seeing the Lord work with the third patriarch, this man, uh, Jacob, who has spent 20 years in Haran. He has prospered despite unfair treatment. The circle on the top. After 20 years, he's left now. Quite the family man, I will say. Two wives, two maids, and 11 sons and a daughter. And the issues related to his uncle Laban and his mistreatment of him in Haran are now in Jacob's rearview mirror. But as he's looking out the front windshield, he's got another problem. As he's making his way back into Canaan, that coastal circle there, He's got to deal with a a grudge, not Jacob's grudge, but Esau's grudge against Jacob. It was a pretty serious grudge. I mean, Esau was going to kill Jacob. That's why Jacob fled to Haran. But now he's returning to Canaan, and Jacob doesn't know if this 20-year-old grudge is resolved. And so it becomes a beautiful couple of chapters dealing with the reconciliation between Jacob and Esau. But right there sandwiched in between his past and his future comes this uh, situation in Peniel where he sends his family away there in the Transjordan. He wrestles with an angel of the Lord all night long, verse 24 And it must have been quite a wrestling match because his hip got dislocated in the process. Verse 28, uh, verse 25, excuse me. And he sort of hangs in there all night long with a dislocated hip, struggling to be blessed. And that blessing occurs in verses 26 through 28. And part of that blessing is Jacob's name has now been changed to Israel. We wouldn't know why Israel is called Israel if we didn't have these chapters in our Bible. The name Israel means he who strives with God. And who exactly has he been wrestling with all night long? We get a description of that beginning in verse 29, this angel of the Lord. Notice, uh, first of all, Jacob's question. 
Verse 29, then Jacob asked him, that's this angel that's dislocated his hip and he's been wrestling with. Jacob asked him and said, please tell me your name. What's your name? And what a, what a great question that is, particularly if you understand the Bible, because a name reveals character. A name reveals destiny. This is why there's so much renaming going on in the Bible. Uh, the Lord to Sarai, now you're called Sarah. The Lord to Abram, now you're called Abraham. The Lord Jesus to Peter, you're no longer called Simon, but now you're called Petros or Peter. This goes on over and over again in the Bible. And so if you understand a person's name, you'll understand destiny and you'll understand character. And so it becomes a tremendous question. And it's actually a question that's answered frequently in the Bible and in particular the book of Genesis because God has many names. He doesn't have many names because there's many gods. We believe in monotheism, one God, but he has many names because he reveals different parts of his character to us depending upon our circumstances. One of his names is El Roy, the God who sees. Another one's name is El, that's what the name God in Hebrew is, El Olam, the everlasting God. There never was a time in which he was not. He's called Jehovah Jireh in the book of Genesis. The, the Lord will provide. He's our provider. Right down to the ultimate provision for us, which is the death and resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ. In fact, here's a list of all of the different names of God that we've studied so far. The very first Hebrew name he's given is Elohim. Genesis 1-1, speaking of his power. And then you get to Genesis 2 verse 4 and he's called Yahweh, which speaks of him being relational. El Roy, he's aware. El Olam, he's eternal. Jehovah Jireh, he's the provider. And in the prior chapter, two times, and he's only called this twice. Genesis 31, verse 42 and verse 53, he's called the God that Isaac feared. Speaking of the fact that we should reverence God, respect his his ways. And so Jacob, I think, is on the right path here where he wants to know what's, what's your name? Because a name reveals character and destiny. And then there's kind of a, a response. To be honest with you, the response is kind of disappointing. Then Jacob asked him and said, please tell me your name. And here's the angel of the Lord back to Jacob. But he said, why is it that you asked me my name? In other words, he doesn't give him an answer. Why is it you even ask? There's, um, there's a word that keeps showing up in the Psalms. It's the word Selah. You'll read a Psalm and you'll get to the end and it'll say Selah. And when I was studying under the late J. Dwight Pentecost, that's how he would conclude his classes. He would say, Selah. Of course, at the time I had no idea what he was talking about. 
But when you look it up in the Hebrew, you'll see that Selah means to think about carefully or to consider carefully. That's sort of what the angel of the Lord is saying to Jacob. He's saying Selah. In other words, think about it. Doesn't answer his question directly. Think about it. Think on it. And you will know what my name is. I mean, after all, I'm the guy that just changed your name. I'm the guy that just blessed you. Do you think any ordinary person could just do that? Do you think any ordinary angel could just do that? I must be something unique. I must be something special. I must be the angel of the Lord. Charles Ryrie says of this verse, quote, Jacob's question had already been answered. In the name bestowed upon him, since El at the end of the name Israel means God, the one who strives with God. You have been striving with God all night long. And it's not like God um, couldn't have won this battle if he wanted to. But he condescended to your level and he allowed this wrestling match to take place to teach you certain truths. And so the angel of the Lord says, you know, at this point, my name should be obvious to you. You should know exactly who it is that you're dealing with. The book of Judges, chapter 13, verses 17 through 18, describes the exact same thing happening with Manoah. Manoah is Samson's father. And it says in Judges 13, verses 17 and 18, when the angel of the Lord was calling Samson into his ministry... Manoah said to the angel of the Lord, what is your name? So that when your words come to pass, we may honor you. But the angel of the Lord said to him, why do you ask my name? Seeing it is wonderful. And what's interesting is that word wonderful, when you track it out through Hebrew Bible, it only applies to the Messiah. Arnold Fruchtenbaum of verse 29 says, in verse 29 is the angel's identification beginning with Jacob's question. Jacob asked him, tell me, I pray your name. However, the angel answered the question with a question. You notice how Jesus does that a lot in the Gospels, doesn't answer questions directly. It's like, Jesus, what are you doing here, running for office or what? Just answer the question. But he'll answer the question with a question because he wants us to think. And if we just get sort of a rote answer, we don't have to really apply our minds. And when we don't apply our minds, we're falling beneath our calling, which is to love the Lord thy God with thy heart, soul, and mind. Tell me I pray your name. However, the angel answered the question with a question. Why is it that you ask after my name? The point was think on it, Selah, in other words. And you will know what my name is. And his name is Yahweh. 
This was very similar, Jacob's question, that is, to Manoah's question. Manoah was the father of Samson. When Samson had an, an encounter with the angel of Jehovah, the angel of God, he asked him the question that Jacob did, what is your name? In that passage, the angel answered, why do you seek after my name? However, in the Judges passage, the angel didn't stop there, but added, seeing it is wonderful. Moreover, the Hebrew word for wonderful is uh, pili, one of those words in the Hebrew text used only of God and never used of a man. In this way, the angel answered Manoah's question. By combining the two passages, there is the same question on the part of man and the same answer with another similar question on the part of the angel. The additional answer was given by the angel in Judges indicates that this was clearly God himself. In verse 29b, Jacob received the blessing and he blessed him there. Hosea 12 verse 4 says, Yea, he had power over the angel and prevailed. Think, think about your question and think about your circumstances. Think about my blessing of you. Think about the fact that I changed your name. You're not dealing here with an ordinary angel. You're dealing with the angel of the Lord. This word wonderful, not used here, but used in the judges passage where the same question was asked, is of course used of Jesus in Messianic prophecy. Isaiah 9 and verse 6, this is on all your Christmas cards, right? I know it's a little early to be thinking of Christmas when it's August and 113 or whatever out there. But Christmas is going to come up on us pretty quick. And we're going to start getting and receiving Christmas cards. This is on all the cards. For a child will be born to us, a son will be given to us, the government will rest upon his shoulders, and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. The name Wonderful is used only of God himself. So obviously when the angel of the Lord in Judges 13, you know, uses this word wonderful in uh, reliance or in an arrow towards himself, in reference to himself, that's what I'm trying to say, he is claiming to be deity. So this is what we would call a, um, it's a theophany. It's, it's a Christophany. In both cases, Judges 13 and Genesis 32, this is what we would call a pre-incarnate appearance of Jesus as the angel of the Lord. It goes by fancy names in theology, theophany, Christophany, but this in essence is what Manoah saw. This in essence is what Jacob saw. It's a manifestation of Jesus Christ before the manger. Obviously, this person must be someone special, this angel, because as I mentioned before, he changes Jacob's name, changes it to Israel, the one who strives with God, meaning that Jacob was striving with God. The name El at the end of Israel seems to indicate that. 
But this particular angel blessed Jacob. And the book of Hebrews, chapter 7 and verse 7 says, But without any dispute, the lesser is blessed by the greater. If a person blesses you, that means the person doing the blessing and you're receiving the blessing has more power than you do. And you combine that with what the blessing actually was, the change of an identity, the change of a destiny. And the angel is saying, the angel of the Lord is saying, why do you even ask the question? See law, consider carefully, I'm the angel of the Lord. And it becomes at this point that this angel of the Lord blesses Jacob. Back to verse 29, it says, Then Jacob asked him and said, Please tell me your name. But he said, Why is it that you ask my name? And then Jacob gets what he asked for. He's striving for a blessing. Remember verse 26 in this wrestling match? He says, I will not let you go unless you bless me. Well, here comes the blessing. Verse 29, And he blessed him there. Must be someone unique, must be someone special, because the blesser has more power than the blessee. And you say, well, wait a minute, Pastor. Didn't you just say a little earlier that his hip was dislocated? Remember verse 25? He touched the socket of his thigh so that the socket of Jacob's thigh was dislocated. What kind of blessing is that? I mean, what what would you think if uh, you came up and asked me to bless you and I took out a hammer and broke your leg? I mean, how would you feel about that? What? I mean, it's just it's just it's just un-American to think this way. But the reason the dislocation was a blessing is the dislocation put Jacob, who had a propensity for deception, as we've seen earlier in Genesis. It put Jacob into a position where he was completely and totally dependent upon God. And had it not been for the dislocation, he would not have been in that state of dependence. Because now he really had to rely upon God. I mean, it's one thing to understand we have to rely upon God. It's one thing to sort of espouse, you know, the correct theology that we all need to rely upon God. I think we all understand that theology as Christians. It's a totally different matter when God says, okay, now you're going to live it out. I'm going to do something to your body. Where every time you walk, as we're going to see in a minute, you're going to be walking with a limp. And as you're walking with a limp, that's actually your blessing. Because that limp reminds you of your limitations. It reminds you of your humanity. And every time you think of your limitations and your humanity, you're going to think to yourself, I really need to rely upon He who is wonderful to pull off in my life what the Lord wants to pull off. Completely different way of looking at suffering. I think last time I shared with you Paul's thorn in the flesh. Second Corinthians chapter 12, verses 7 through 9. Because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations for this 
reason to keep me from exalting myself. There was given to me, like a gift, you mean? Given to me a thorn in the flesh. What's What was the thorn in the flesh? Malaria? Declining eyesight? Nobody knows what the thorn in the flesh was. I know this much about thorns, though, as they hurt. My personal belief is it was the whole Corinthian church. (laughs) How would you like to be the pastor of that group? Thorn in the flesh. There was given to me a thorn in the flesh, a messenger from Satan to torment me, to keep me from exalting myself. Why the necessity of this? Because of who Paul was. Probably was, um, other than Moses himself, obviously other than Jesus, other than Moses, I can't think of a, a man that was more strategically used by God than the Apostle Paul. The missionary journeys that we read about in the book of Acts, if you don't have Paul, you don't have any of those missionary journeys. The 13 letters that we read, the Pauline letters without Paul, and his dependence on God, you don't have any of those letters. The thorn in the flesh made all of that ministry that he had necessary. But the problem with Paul is he just had too much talent, too much intellect. And um, as the Bible says, first comes pride, then comes a fall. So I'm going to introduce you, Paul, to a blessing. You may not look at it that way. It's a thorn. It's going to hurt to the point where Paul is going to ask God to take it out away from him three times. But but that's your blessing. It's going to keep you from exalting yourself, particularly when you've had these surpassing revelations, meaning 14 years earlier you were brought into the third heaven or up to the third heaven where God lives. And you heard things a man is not fit to hear. Think of the pride involved in that. What's going to keep your ego in check? It's this thorn in the flesh. Concerning this, Paul says, I implored the Lord three times. That's a lot of, not just asking. It's like he's imploring, Lord, get rid of this thing, whatever it is. And he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you. For my power, that's the missionary journeys, power. That's that's the 13 letters, power. For my power is perfected in weakness. Most gladly, therefore, I I would rather boast about my weaknesses. When was the last time you boasted about your weaknesses? We we just don't do that. Paul, Paul is not boasting in his strengths. He's boasting in his weaknesses so that the power of Christ may dwell in me. Interesting way of looking at a blessing. God blessed him there, and part of that blessing, verse 25, is a dislocated thigh. One of the ways the Lord really helped me with this was when I actually was a short-term missionary to the Philippines right after I graduated from college in 1989. We had a, it was, believe it or not, a basketball ministry. Filipinos love basketball. 
And Filipinos are a little shorter than I am. They just thought, whoa, I was like Michael Jordan over there before anybody knew who Michael Jordan really was, I I think. But um, they love basketball, and we would gather maybe 2,000 people at a basketball game, play the game, and then we would give the gospel at halftime. And there was a fellow that had lived as an American, and then he lived in the Philippines for years and years organizing this ministry. And I remember he was a former basketball player, but he walked with a limp, just like Jacob. And I remember him teaching Bible studies to us because that was part of it. They they taught us. And I remember him teaching on this passage. And he says, you know, every time I go back home to the United States, everybody says, boy, what's happened to your leg is sure a curse. And everybody has told me, you know, to pray and claim it and name it and all this stuff and get rid of it. And he goes, after years and years and years of doing this ministry and seeing the Lord literally do miracles through this ministry of evangelism, seeing seeing the gospel spread all over the Philippines because of this ministry, he says, "This, this limp that I have, this injury that I have is my blessing. Every, every time I wake up and I, I feel the pain in my leg, I say, the Lord has blessed me. The, the Lord has used this to put me in a state of dependence upon Him. Now, in our very shallow theology today, you know, your best life now and all this kind of stuff, we, we just really don't have a theology of suffering. But we need to be encouraged in the theology of suffering because I can guarantee you there are things in your life you don't understand. You've talked to God about it. You've asked God about it. You may have even been like the Apostle Paul and you've implored the Lord, you know, maybe multiple times, Paul's case, three times, take this away. Maybe there's some kind of financial issue that doesn't seem to go away. Maybe there's a relational issue that doesn't seem to go away. Remember, there, maybe there's an emotional issue that doesn't seem to go away. Remember, there's, maybe there's some kind of physical issue that doesn't seem to go away. And at some point you have to ask yourself, well, maybe this is my blessing. Maybe this is what the Lord gave me to remind me over and over again of my limitations so that he can use me because my power is made perfect in weakness. Second Corinthians, it's, it's called the book of paradoxes. You know, up is down, down is up, that kind of thing. If you want to promote yourself, you'll be abased. If you want to humble yourself, you'll be exalted. You know, when I'm strong, I'm weak. When I'm weak, I'm strong. It's the book that gives you the opposites, like as I'm trying to describe. One of them is power through weakness. You know, the word power, dunamis, where we get the word dynamite, dynamic, does not fit with the word weakness. I mean, those are different things. Weak is weak and power is power. But God says in this book of paradoxes, Second Corinthians, and I think he's 
unfolding this as he's dealing with Jacob. He's saying, no, power is weakness and weakness is power. Because human weakness reminds you that you cannot live the Christian life through your own power. You cannot become what God has called you to become through your own power. God understands that. We don't. (laughs) Because the independence of our sin natures is so strong. And so God will very typically introduce these issues into a person's life. And if you're attending a church that teaches the prosperity gospel um, and it teaches, you know, these things are abnormalities, they're, they're aberrations, they're intruders, you don't have to submit to this, you don't have to put up with it, um, what you'll start thinking as those issues don't get resolved in your life is you're going to think, well, somehow I must have missed God. I must be outside the will of God. When the truth of the matter is you could be directly in the will of God, just under some really bad teaching and theology that's very superficial and does not have a fleshed out doctrine of suffering. Jacob was blessed by the angel of the Lord. Jacob became, in the subsequent chapters, what God called him to become, but he, but he blessed him first. And part of that blessing was a injury. That, if I'm reading my Bible right, it seems to have plagued Jacob all, all his days. You know, the blessings of God come in different sizes and shapes, don't they? New job, I've been blessed. And, Maybe that is a blessing of God. New car, I've been blessed. Health problem? Hmm. Maybe I should say I've been blessed there too. A thorn in the flesh? I've been blessed with that too. But regardless of what's happening in your life, God has already blessed you in the spiritual places with every spiritual blessing. I mean, that much is yours. Blessed be the God in Ephesians 1, 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus who has blessed us with 99%, no, every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Smyrna, the church struggling with persecution and poverty, was rich. Revelation 2, 9. I know your poverty, but you are rich. So positionally, we're all blessed. I think materially, living in the United States, we're all blessed. Just look at how the rest of the world lives. That could be a blessing. But what about things where finances become difficult? What about health problems? Relational conflicts? Things that you have to go before the Lord and cry out to the Lord for that don't seem to get fixed, don't seem to get resolved. God's blessed you there too. God blessed Jacob. And part of that blessing was a dislocation. He goes on here, uh, verses uh, 30 through 32, and it describes the results of this encounter, the results of this wrestling match, the, the results of everything that we have read. How, how did it all end? Well, f- first, the very place where he was was renamed. 
It's there in verse 30. So Jacob named the place Peniel. For he said, I have seen God face to face, and yet my life has been preserved. The very place he was, near the Jabbok River, in the Transjordan, uh, east of the Jordan River, got this name from Jacob, Peniel, which means the face of God. Charles Ryrie writes concerning this this verse, Peniel, and I think there's actually a camp Peniel, isn't there? I think that's where the name comes from. It means the face of God. I saw God face to face. Now, you might be aware of the fact that this causes a theological problem. Because what did God say to Moses? Exodus 33, verse 20. You cannot see my face, for no man can see my face and live. Um, John chapter 1, verse 18. What does John write concerning Jesus? No one has seen God at any time. The only begotten God who is in the bosom of the Father has explained him. You can't see my face and live. Jesus said, that's why I became a man, so that I could relate to you, so that you could see God, for no one has seen God at any time. So then why in the world would Jacob name the place Peniel, for I have seen God? Well, what Jacob saw was a condescension of God. God coming down to Jacob's level in the form of a theophany, a Christophany, a pre-incarnate appearance of Jesus, Jesus before the manger. That's what Jacob saw is God condescending to Jacob's level. He couldn't see God himself or else he would die. In fact, none of us, if we actually saw God as he is, could live. And God knows that. So what does God do? I mean, how how is it that we as mere human beings can relate to God who's clothed in unapproachable light, who if we saw him as he is, we would we would die? How does God fix that problem? He condescends. He becomes one of us. He added at the point of the virgin conception eternally existent deity, and it was at that point that the second member of the Trinity became the God-man. Deity was never subtracted from humanity at the point of the virgin conception. The virgin conception is not a subtraction. It is not an exchange. It is an addition. And as Jesus lived among us, and walked among us, and we have a historical account of it in the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, we can see the interaction of Jesus with human beings because he's one of us in that sense. And we look at him and we say, oh, that's what God is like. Without that condescension, we couldn't see it. It wouldn't make any sense to us. And this is what Jacob saw. He he didn't see the incarnate Christ. That wouldn't happen for another, uh, what, uh, 
uh, 2,000 years or so. But he saw a manifestation of God through what we call the theophany or the Christophany, sometimes called uh, the angel of the Lord. I mean, there are very clear times in the scripture where the angel of the Lord can't just be an angel. It's got to be something more. One of those times is in Joshua chapter 5, where Joshua is entering the land to conquer the land of Canaan, and there's the angel of the Lord there. And Joshua asks a question, and the angel of the Lord answers. And Joshua and those with him worship the angel of the Lord. An ordinary angel will never receive worship. In fact, John two times tried to worship the angel that gave him the book of Revelation. Because the revelation was handed off from God the Father to God the Son, ultimately to an angel, ultimately to John, where he wrote it down in a book. And John, you know, think if you, think if you received the book of Revelation like that. You would have a natural tendency to want to worship the intermediary. And John in Revelation 19, I want to say around verse 10, tries to worship the angel. And the angel says, knock it off. And then John does it again <laughs> in Revelation 22. He tries to worship the angel a second time. And the angel says, knock it off. Kind of funny because John ends his epistle by saying, little children, keep yourself from idols. And John became an idolater twice. You worship something in, instead of God. An angel doesn't just say, hey, yeah, I'll receive worship. The angel always says, stop it, worship the Lord. And in Joshua 5, they're worshiping the angel, and the angel doesn't say anything. The angel is receiving worship. So that must be something more than just an angel. That must be the angel of the Lord. That must be a Christophany. That must be a theophany. That must be a pre-incarnate appearance of Jesus before the manger. That's what Jacob is seeing right here. And so that's why he names this place Peniel. Verse 30. It means the face of God. He saw God. He saw God as God condescended to Jacob's level. And uh, Peniel is referred to elsewhere in Scripture. You'll see it referred to in Judges 8, 8 verse 8. Judges 8, verse 17. You'll see it referred to in 1 Kings 12, 25. It's the place of a lot of significant things that happen in the Bible. And it's kind of interesting that when you come to those places of Scripture, the Scripture never re-explains itself and says, oh, this is the... This is the place that Jacob named the face of God. The rest of the Bible is sort of expecting us to understand that before we get to those passages. And we would expect it to be revealed here because the book of Genesis is the book of beginnings. You have no knowledge of Genesis. You don't know how anything started. You don't even know why these cities are named the way that they're named as you move into the Bible. 
The book of Genesis describes the beginning of the universe, the beginning of life, the beginning of man, the beginning of marriage, which society is trying to change today, as if society has the right to do that, because it's God's arrangement. Genesis tells us that. Gosh, maybe that's why the the ungodly hate the book of Genesis so much. You throw out the book of Genesis, you can, you don't, you don't, you, you don't see God's blueprint in, in anything anymore. And you can redefine anything the way you want. The beginning of evil, the beginning of clothing. I mean, why do you guys wear clothes? I mean, I'm glad you did, believe me. <laughs> Genesis tells you the beginning of religion, the beginning of salvation. I mean, why do we, why do we believe Justification by faith alone in Christ alone. Why do we believe that? It starts in Genesis. The beginning of language, the beginning of government. Where did government come from? God created it. The beginning of nations, the beginning of Israel, and we're seeing another example of it, the beginning of places and, and cities. But you notice what he says here, verse 30. So Jacob named the place Peniel, for he said, I have seen God face to face. Jacob believed that what he saw with this angel of the Lord was God. He already knew the answer to the question. That's why when he asks what's your name, the angel of the Lord really doesn't answer. He just says, Selah, consider, think about what you already know. This angel of the Lord is the eternally existent second member of the deity, Jesus Christ, who made an appearance as many times in the Old Testament before the manger. Who do we worship anyway? We worship one God. And yet that God has expressed himself eternally in three personages. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. All three sharing in the same essence of deity. All three always in existence. And yet, each is unique in its personhood. The Father is not the Spirit. Because the Father is unique in His fatherness. The Spirit is not the Son. Because the Spirit is unique in His Spiritness. The Son is not the Father or the Spirit because the Son is unique in His Sonness. All three eternally existing, separate personages sharing in the same essence of deity. You say, well, Pastor, I need you to explain that to me better. I can't. It's, it's, it's a, as I like to say, it's above my pay grade. It's something that the human mind cannot fully wrap itself around. I mean, you'll be wrestling with this till your dying day, this, this concept of the Trinity. And yet it is a magnificent, majestic, glorious presentation of God who is one. And you'll be interacting your whole Christian life with groups that claim to be Christian that deny this. Some of them are coming right to your doorstep. 
The Jehovah's Witnesses will deny this. They'll deny that Jesus is the eternally existent God. They think Jesus was created. The Mormons think that Jesus is sort of the spirit brother of Lucifer. The Muslims, they call us, and they are growing in this area. Would you not agree with that population-wise? I mean, I, I made a wrong turn not too long ago into that big area there, not too far from here. On a Friday night, I think it was, I literally felt that I was had made a turn into like what today we would call a mega church. And they come to this church trying to proselytize us, trying to get us to come over. We've got a carnival. We've got, you know, face painting for the kids, trying to sort of put a happy face on Islam. Um, the truth of the matter is they don't believe anything we believe. They actually call us the three God Christians. They don't, they don't believe that Jesus is the eternally existent second member of the Trinity. They'll use the word Jesus, but they think he's coming back, you know, sort of as the sidekick of Allah. Not understanding that the book of Revelation says of Jesus, he's the king of kings. He's the Lord of lords. So the better you wrap your mind around the triunity concept, the better you're able to see truth versus deception in this cultic maze that we're in now where alternative religions are proliferating. So Jacob here says that he is preserved. If you look there at the second part of verse 30, So Jacob named the place Peniel, for he says, I have seen God face to face, yet my life has been preserved. Preserved from what? First of all, I've seen God in condescension form, and yet I'm still alive. I saw a theophany. So you saved me from destruction. You have saved me from Laban, that I've leaving now. And now I'm going to face Esau and you're going to save me from that. You save me from the past. You save me from what's going to happen in my future. Because you preserve my life. If, if there's anything to understand about the Bible, it's this. God is in the saving business. After Daniel is rescued from the lion's den in Daniel chapter 6 verse 27, it says this of God, He delivers and He rescues. And He works signs and wonders in heaven and on earth who has delivered Daniel from the power of the lion's den. God saved Jacob. Saved him from Laban, saving him from Esau, saving him from certain death. If he saw God face to face, you've preserved my life. And that's the way to look at your crises, whatever it is. You ask God for deliverance. You said, Lord, you're in the saving business. Help me with this. It's bigger than me. I can't deal with this. I can't negotiate with this. Help me. I I pray that prayer about myself 
constantly because there are constantly things entering my life that I have no ability to control. I think, quite frankly, God allows a lot of them. Because if he didn't allow them, how would you ever, how would we ever understand that God is in the saving business? Why would you cry out to God? That's the problem with wealth. You know, Jesus talked about how it's hard, impossible for the rich to enter. Why would he say something like that? Because the rich are used to buying their way out of their problems. If you're used to buying, it's hard to pray for your daily bread, let's just put it this way, when you own your own bakery. (laughs) So God, what does he do? He puts you in a situation where you've got something in your life that you can't fix. Because God wants you to go to him with it. So he can demonstrate to you that he's in the saving business. And if he doesn't save you from it, well, that's God's plan too. That could be part of the blessing God has entered into your life to keep you in a place of humility so he can keep using you. So either way, you win. You get protected from your problem, and if you don't, God put it there by divine design. So there's no way to lose in this walk of the Christian. Of course, the ultimate salvation that God gives us is justification. We're freed from sin's penalty at the point of faith alone in Christ alone. And then moving to the right-hand side of the screen, we're saved in glorification where we'll be delivered from sin's very presence. And then in between, God just doesn't say, well, good luck. Best wishes to you. He says, now is the walk of sanctification where if you apply my resources moment by moment, by faith, and make decisions accordingly, you'll start to sin less. You won't be sinless, but you will sin less. So you're being saved in your sanctification. So that's the whole Christian walk. Save. I have been saved. I am being saved. I will be saved. And if all of that weren't enough, there are other salvations that the Lord does for us. Like what's happening here with Jacob. You've preserved my life. God is a saving, saving God. I'm sure glad he is because we're drowning, aren't we? In our natural selves. So the first thing that happens is the place name is changed. And then you see Jacob's limp. Verse 31. Now the sun rose. So it's the next day. The wrestling match is over. Now the sun rose upon him as he crossed over the uh, penuel. Now that's a slightly different spelling than penial. But it's the same place. And he was limping on his thigh. So a lot of the commentators describe this um, contest with the angel of the Lord as it's he was he just had an active prayer life, you know. Well, I don't know how an active prayer life dislocates your thigh. I mean, to me, this like really happened. We should have an active prayer life, but it's it, there's a lot more here than just an active prayer life. I mean, he wrestled with the theophany that condescended to his level, 
blessed him by dislocating his thigh and changing his name, which is a revelation of his destiny. And so when all is said and done, he's, he's still limping. Did he limp the rest of his life? I have a tendency to think he did. Doesn't say. Doesn't say how long the injury lasted. But it was his, his blessing. And this then became the source of a Hebrew tradition. Verse 32. Therefore to this day, what day? The day Moses recorded these words. About six centuries or so later. Therefore to this day the sons of Israel do not eat the sinew of the hip which is on the socket of the thigh because he, the angel of the Lord, touched and touched as as a lousy translation. It's more of a miraculous blow that transpired. Verse 25. Therefore to this day the sons of Israel do not eat the sinew of the hip which is on the socket of the thigh, because he touched the socket of Jacob's thigh in the sinew of the hip. Arnold Fruchtenbaum says this, the account in verse 32 spelling out that was the source of a Jewish tradition. Therefore the children of Israel eat not the sinew of the hip, which is upon the hollow of the thigh to this day. Arnold Fruchtenbaum would know, being a Hebrew Christian. This refers to the sciatic nerve, and so unto this day the arteries and the tendons were removed before the meat was ritually prepared for Jewish consumption. However, this practice eventually was not incorporated into rabbinic Jewish law. And it's not considered part of kosher law today. However, this was the original practice. And the reason given for this practice was because he touched the hollow of Jacob's thigh in the sinew of the hip. Charles Ryrie says, though the practice is not forbidden in Scripture, Jews traditionally avoided eating the sciatic nerve sinew of the hind quarter of animals. So apparently it did start some kind of tradition within Judaism. It um, lasted at least until the time of Moses. It's still practiced in some circles today, but it never became part of Jewish law. It never became part of the law of Moses, but it's the beginning of a, of a custom. And you would expect that, wouldn't you, in a book like this, the book of beginnings? When you can imagine being Jewish and following this custom and wondering, why do we do this? This is weird. Why do we do this? Well, you read the book of Genesis and you have an answer. By the way, your children and your grandchildren are asking the same kinds of questions. Why, uh, why is there so much violence in our world? Why does God even love us? Where does evil come from? Why do governments become tyrannical? Where where do dinosaurs, where do they fit in? And if you're not a student of the book of Genesis, you're just caught flat-footed. You don't know what to say. You're, You're not even in a position to lead your own household, your own children and grandchildren whose minds are filled with these questions.
Because who do you think they're going to come to for answers? They're going to come to you. Aren't you? Don't you go to that church, that Bible church? What's that called? The church that never lets out on time. What's that church called? I mean, you're, the people with under your sphere of influence are asking these questions. You're the one they're going to ask. And you have to be in a, in a church that's equipping you with answers. So you can do your ministry. Because Sugarland Bible Church can't do your ministry for you. I mean, I can't be the head of your house. I have enough problems with my own house. And they have enough problems with me. And they both just said amen right there in the front. <laughs> you have to take leadership of where, wherever God has put you. Your children, your grandchildren, your sphere of influence. Uh, study and show yourself approved as a workman that need not be ashamed. Uh, the late Walter Martin would translate that verse as follows. As a workman that blushes with embarrassment. Because he hasn't studied handling accurately the word of truth. So this ends with, therefore to this day the sons of Israel do not eat the sinew of the hip, which is on the socket of the thigh, because he touched the socket of Jacob's thigh in the sinew of the hip. Fascinating account here of Jacob wrestling with an angel of the Lord. And yet it's part of a big theme of Jacob and Esau being reconciled. It started in Mahanaim, and then it moved into Jacob's initial message to Esau, where Esau is coming with 400 people, and Jacob doesn't know what, how to do, how to negotiate this. And then God and Jacob wrestle all night long. Where Jacob is blessed, his name is changed, he's in a, he's put in a place of dependence upon God because of a physical limitation in his life, and now we're ready for chapter 33, verses 1 through 17, which Lord willing will cover next week, where a 20 year old grudge is reconciled. And speaking of reconciliation, the Lord has resolved His grudge, can I put it that way, against you and against me. Because we have committed offenses against God which are called sin. Sin meaning we've fallen short of the divine standard. And God loves us so much that instead of pouring out his wrath upon us, he poured it out on his son, the second member of the eternally existent Trinity. One member of the Trinity, God the Father, pours out his wrath on another member of the Trinity, God the Son, so that that wrath would not have to be poured out upon me and you if we receive what he did for us as a gift. And the only way to receive a gift from God is to believe, which is another way of saying trust. We trust, we depend upon, we rely upon what Jesus did for us 2,000 years ago. And just like that, 
we are reconciled unto God. I can't think of a bigger issue in a person's life than that one. You know, when you fall out of favor with people or people get mad at you or a relationship gets strained somehow, we're always thinking about, well, how can that relationship be fixed? How can reconciliation take place? And yet the ultimate relationship that we need fixed is our relationship to our Creator. And yet it's been provided in the person of Jesus. We trust in what He has done. I would encourage anyone within the sound of my voice to do that. It's not something you have to walk an aisle to receive, join a church to receive, give money to receive. It's just a matter of privacy between you and the Lord where He convicts you of your need for reconciliation and you trust in what He has done because Jesus paid our sin debt 2,000 years ago and we're reconciled unto God. If it's something that people need more explanation on, I'm available after the service to talk. So we pray. Father, we're grateful for this chapter and what it teaches us. Looking forward to next week as we learn about a tremendous reconciliation that's on the horizon. I pray, Lord, this week as you've given us reconciliation that you would help us to walk in the ministry of reconciliation. That we would hold this solution out to others. And we would act this week like people that have been reconciled to you. Not grudge holders and fault finders, but people that have received grace. And if we, as we have received grace, I pray that we would extend that to others in our walk with you this week. We'll be careful to give you all the praise and the glory. We ask these things in Jesus' name and God's people said.